Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Yes, the rules have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Indoor Air Quality Radio is broadcast from coast to coast and around the world over the Internet. Today's broadcast is episode number 157, and today is Friday, February 26, 2010. My name is Cliff Slotnick, known as the Z-Man. Radio Joe Hughes will be participating remotely from Studio C in Indian Lake, PA. The intrepid environmental Ann Koalecki is at the controls. Today's segments include the microband trivia question, an interview with today's guest, Dr. Lisa Naj, MD, some technical comments by our technical director, Dr. Dieter Weil, and the roundup. Radio Joe and I, along with Environmental Annie and the Wingman's help, have been working on the iqradio.com website. We add to the website and blog each week after the show. We've also changed the invitation news announcement from IEQ Radio and the IEQ Training Institute, and we hope that you like the new look and the improved functionality. Now we'd like to thank our sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Dryease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dryease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. In order to contact the show by phone, you can dial 724-444-7444 and enter our show ID, which is 1547. Press 1 and join the show. The show can be downloaded by going to our website, www.iqradio.com. And you can also get the show from iTunes. You can obtain your IICRC continuing education credits, ACAC renewal credits, and now ABIH credits by emailing Radio Joe and requesting the quiz. Radio Joe's email is joe.use at iaqtraining.com. To make suggestions, special requests, or ask technical questions, you can either email Radio Joe or the Z-Man. My email address is cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. Last but not least, please visit the IEQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at ieqtraining.com.
congratulations. To Cassidy L. Kuchenbecker, project scientist at Michaels Engineering, for answering last week's two-part trivia question, correctly identifying molecule as the smallest unit of a substance that retains the properties of that substance and inert as matter that does not enter into a chemical reaction. You can win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IEQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the microvan trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Simply email it to cliffz at prorestoreproducts.com. Now for the microvan trivia question for Friday, February 26, 2010. Name the allergist who in the 1940s developed the underlying concept that people could become ill from exposures to substances at doses far below the levels normally considered safe. Okay, how about some intro music for today's guest? I think Joe will do the guest introduction. Joe? All right. Today's guest is uh, Lisa Levine Naraj, MD, graduated magna cum laude from the University of Pennsylvania and then from Cornell Medical College in 1986. After a surgical internship, she completed emergency medicine residency at Metropolitan Hospital in New York City and practiced in Los Angeles until becoming severely ill. She uh, had a couple of different uh, syndromes here, the Addison's disease, mitochondrial myopathy, and I can't even pronounce the last one. We'll have her do that for us. As a result of a complex medical condition known as chemical sensitivity or environmental illness. Her story of survival and journey of discovery, which led to uh, her to determine what made her have such severe symptoms, inspired ABC's Nightline to interview her this year and many newspapers and magazines to feature her recovery. In her case, it was due to mold exposure, and in others, it's due to pesticides or chemical exposure. She learned about the field of environmental medicine and its focus on finding the causes of disease, including genetic hormonal, nutritional, allergic, and environmental factors. She is now president of Preventative Preventative Environmental Health Alliances, which is a group focused on educating medical students, doctors, the AMA, Congress, and the public, and assist patients to find help nationwide. Listening to physicians and other people who have developed severe environmental illness is the first step towards helping the 75 million people in the country with various health issues including autoimmunity related to their environments. Her website is www.environmentalmedicineinfo.com. Welcome, Dr. Naj. 
Hello. How are you? How are you? What an introduction. <laughs> hey, hey, thank you. I, I butchered a little bit of it because I, I was so worried about, is it dysauto? It's dis- dysautonomia. Yeah, we can talk about it later. It's kind of common. It, it means you have a fast heart rate when you stand up for a long time, and it's kind of common in society. So when we get into symptoms, we can discuss how many people have mild dysautonomia. Okay, great. Well, let's start with the uh, Preventative and Environmental Health Alliance, Inc. Why did you start this group, and um, where, where are you headed with it? Well, I, I started it because I wanted to initially prevent others from going through the hell that I had experienced, and I thought I could, uh, you know, fix the problem. I thought, hey, nobody knows about the field of environmental medicine for some reason, and, geez, it's been 30 years, and nobody's really globbed on to the idea, and there's a lot of infighting between branches of medicine, like allergy and um, psychiatry and, um, you know, uh, occupational and environmental medicine itself is a, is a formal specialty which has been sort of battling environmental medicine, which is thought of as more of a fringe group of physicians, and, and I'm trying to bring them all together. And, and get along and then try to benefit patients nationwide so we can all, you know, get better. You know, oh, in, in your, go ahead, Cliff. I was going to say, you know, people that suffer uh, from multi-chemical sensitivity have, you know, some sort of really defining moment or defining time or defining incident. Um, you know, can you trace your illness back to anything specifically? Well, I think that a lot of us, a lot of patients glob on to one thing. And actually, it's not always correct. There's a moment usually of a big exposure um, to, you know, you remember, you ask a patient, when were they last well? And they can think back to, uh, I was well in 2000. And then after we had, let's say, uh, tending of the house for pesticides, you know, with pesticides, or we had uh, moved into a new home, or I got a new job, and the new place was either moldy or had a lot of formaldehyde and other chemicals outgassing um, from new materials. And then the person precipitously goes downhill within days, weeks, or months. So that's usually what you think of is that last event. But really, it's the total load of what you've been exposed to your whole life. So if you've been in pretty good shape and never really lived in a moldy house, you've got a different total load than somebody who went from one place to another that had multiple exposures, they're likely to get sicker earlier in their life and become disabled. Okay. Joe? Well, I'm curious, can we talk a little bit about what your initial issue was in the uh, bio? It says that you were exposed to mold in your home, and I think it would be nice to go into a little more detail for our listeners as to what caused your initial um, total load, I guess, or is right. that along the way toward the total load? Well, I had a, uh, a new home. I, I purchased a house. I was working in emergency medicine, and I got my first house with my husband and, uh, and one dog. And the man who sold me the house was um, a little wacky, almost in a bipolar kind of way. And after buying the house, he was hospitalized. Uh, with a pneumonia that they couldn't treat very easily. And then he, he had some uh, psychological issues that progressed. And we thought that was interesting. But then it started happening to us. <laughs> and we didn't really put it together. So what happened is he had built a large aquarium with 5,000 gallons of water into the living room wall and put a shed around it. So you would sit in the living room and watch the koi fish swim around. We had little sharks. You know, it was very fun. And what happened is he covered up the air intake for the house with the pine shed so that the mold 
growing on the wood walls like a pine box really um, really couldn't be seen and just smelled like an aquarium when you went around to feed the fish but um, the mycotoxins apparently were sucked in with the spores into the home and the home never smelled moldy so it was all a mystery we never figured it out while we were in the house it's okay. you, never, you, you were never able to um have any sampling done or anything? No, I didn't know anything about mold. It never dawned on me because nobody ever walked over my house and, and walked in and said, it smells moldy here. And I, you adapt to it. If it happens progressively over time, you never notice that your own place smells. Unless you go away for a week, maybe for vacation, you maybe come back and notice. So we had no clue. And in fact, I thought I had a psychological problem. I thought I was just depressed because I couldn't move. I was real tired. I was always in my bathrobe. I, um, <laughs> I would go to work and you know, I would cry at everything. People in the emergency room, the patients, the families, the doctors, it all made me fall apart. And I traditionally trained, thought, oh, I've got a psych problem. So I went to a psychiatrist, which was really the wrong direction. Well, we talk a lot here on the show about mold and mycotoxins and um, other, other biologicals that occur in damp environments. And I'm just curious, do you think it's possible it was something other than the mycotoxins and the, or the mold that caused your illness and that maybe it was something like a, a bacteria or um, there's, you know, uh, there's a soup of uh, different things that exist in these damp environments. Uh, do you think it's definitely just the mold or was, could it have been something? Well, else? it almost doesn't matter too much as long as you have a marker. So I had the mycotoxins called the trichocythines as my marker. I had, uh, you know, a year later, I had been to a clinic. They found the trichocythines in the urine. And then they found it in the husband, my husband's urine. And then I found it in dust. And then I used that marker to say, well, the dust on my clothing is positive for the trichocythines, so the, the clothing's going to go. But there could have been five other things in addition to the trichocythines, other mycotoxins, bacterial problems. Um, I had a pesticide tenting. So there are multiple problems. The point is, once I got sick, I needed a reason to walk away from my belongings. And I found the reason in a test that had recently been developed. But I don't know that much about endotoxins. And it's very possible that we had multiple agents making us sick. Nevertheless, the treatment kind of gets you well from everything. So the, if you do detoxification, hopefully it'll treat all of the things you were exposed to. It's not just um, isolating the mycotoxin exposure. Now you went, I don't know how quickly you went from this situation to visiting a, a very well-known uh, doctor in, in Dallas, Dr. Ray, to be treated. Um, did you go immediately to that? Did you find him immediately? Did it take a little time? And can no, you it, tell us a little bit about his clinic and what he does? Well, I was really fortunate that I kind of found him on death's door just before I was going to die. I probably had a month left. And I had gone to um, multiple traditional physicians like neurologists and maybe five neurologists. And um, I had a biopsy from one neurologist of muscle. And it said I had a lack of oxygen in the mitochondria. So the mitochondria were dying from hypoxic damage. So I got muscle weakness. So it looked like I had Lou Gehrig's disease. So I had that neurologic diagnosis. And then I also got a, a cardiologist to see me who found out I had dysautonomia, where the heart rate goes fast when you stand up. And I couldn't stand very easily. And then um, endocrinologist said I had Addison's disease, where there is no cortisol being produced, or hardly any. And so these things didn't just happen in me, 
but they happen in most of the environmental patients that you see to some degree. So I ended up at a meeting in Washington, D.C. on chemical sensitivity, guessing that I should be there. I didn't really know I had it because I wore a lot of perfume. <laughs> so here I go to this meeting where perfume is banned, and I don't have any idea what's going on. I wear more perfume to the banquet at night. It was almost a joke. And then there was a lecture in the morning by a Dr. William Ray, and he had discussed the treatment of people who had developed chemical sensitivity. Some of them developed it from mold exposure. I talked to him, and the next day after the meeting was over, I flew to Dallas and followed him, and I was there for three months for treatment. Okay, and we can go into the treatment a little bit later in the, in the show, if that's okay with sure. you. Sure. Because I, I think one of the things that I know you were interested in talking about is how do people like uh, our listeners, who oftentimes are indoor environmental quality investigators or they're remediators doing disaster restoration, how do they deal with people like you that are, and, and I don't mean it in a <laughs> negative way, <laughs> I mean, but people who are, you know, um, they're stressed because they've had a disaster or a mold problem or whatever, they're not feeling well for any number of reasons, and they may be acting a little out of sorts. How do, how do you recommend we deal with those types well, of things? That's well, that's the exciting thing, is that once you know what's going on as a person, let's say you're a remediator or an investigator for mold, and you go in a house, you need to understand that the people in the house could be sick, and the sickness can be physiologic, like I mentioned with all these other problems, they can develop chemical sensitivity, and they can develop psychiatric problems. And so the brain is not isolated from the body. Obviously, if you have damage to your endocrine system and you're all running on adrenaline, then you will be hyped up. And when somebody you know, has a discussion with you, you will be loquacious. You will be frantic. You will be hard to deal with. So if you go into work in a place and the person, the, the wife often is more, much more affected than the husband, um, you have to realize that they're not just crazy, but they're crazy from the mold. As I, I wrote an article like five years ago called Crazy from the Mold. And I don't mean to say that patients are crazy that they're not sick. But if you have that understanding, then you can be kind to them. You can keep your distance because you don't want to get involved in an argument with people when you know you're going to not be able to win. And you can refer them for help and treatment to a book and to a website where they can find an environmental physician. And I'll tell you the website, just so I mention it. It's um, the American Academy of Environmental Medicine. And there are about 1,000 practitioners in the country who some of them are still members and some of them have been around for a long time. They've dropped their membership. But they can be reached by going to uh, www.aaemonline.org. And that lists all the doctors in each state. And uh, if you have questions, you know, you can call me or a patient can call me and I'll help figure out which physician may be best for them. But that's the, the fun thing is that don't just think the patient is a pain in the neck, but you can help the patient to go get treated and to learn about the environmental medicine approach so they don't succumb to the exposure. And this is, again, the American Academy of Environmental Medicine, aaemonline.org. Right. Okay. That's great. That's a good tip for our listeners and um, also I think, your I think, website. Yeah, I mean, I think that the best thing you can do is hand everybody that website because it discusses uh, the philosophy about exposure and leading to disease, and then they can be on their own journey to get well. But if you don't tell them anything, they're going to be like me, wandering around lost and sick for years, 
and then potentially having a life-threatening problem and, and will never find help. Um, and I have a website. You were just asking me about that. Yes. I, I, very excitingly, I finally got my nonprofit status, um, a 5013C, a couple days ago. So I have a website. It's environmentalmedicineinfo.com. And the shorter version is my name, lisanagy.com. And if you go to the website, you find my email address. If people have questions, I help people for free. If they can afford to donate, then they donate you know, to the nonprofit. But it's a shame that there are very few resources in the country, and people get cheap when they get sick. They don't want to spend $10. So you, know, you have to have some way for them to find out what's going on without charging them for money. So that's what I'm doing now until I go into practice uh, in the next few months. And then I'll probably scale down a bit the free help. But. Okay, now you led me to two questions. Cliff, I'm sorry to dominate this. I'll get right with you there. I know uh, I'm talking too much. Uh, well, I'm, <laughs> I've been going on myself, but is treatment, through an environmental medicine, a member of the American Academy of Environmental Medicine, is that typically covered under your typical uh, health insurance program? Some of the doctors are covered. I would say it's um, hit or miss, and you should call and discuss it with the secretary and say um, in the office and say, this is my health plan, what will it cover? But in general, even if the visits to the doctor are covered, which can be, let's say, 285 an hour for the first appointment, usually the first appointment is 90 minutes, you know, 60 to 90 minutes. A lot of the testing uh, may not be t- covered. So if you want to do your mycotoxins in the urine, there's a lab called Neuroscience that's running it for a lab called Real-Time Labs. And it's actually, uh, they're not marking off the tests at all because they want the public to have access to these mycotoxin tests. It's for aflatoxin, ochratoxin, and the trichocythines. But it's about $650 for those three. And it is uh, possible that they can bill it through your insurance. So you don't know unless you call and you say, hello, neuroscience, this is my insurance plan, what do I do, will it be covered? And then a traditional physician technically can order that test. If you're positive for those mycotoxins, then you need to get your act together and figure out what you're going to do to uh, stop the exposure and detoxify. Okay, now one more quick one because you had mentioned and we in your introduction mentioned that you were practicing at the in an emergency room in emergency medicine mm-hmm. and you just mentioned that you will soon be practicing environmental medicine was there some process you had to go through to become certified to do that again yeah i think the process will change as we get more people in the country wanting to go into the field right now there's a board exam for the environmental medicine physicians and a training course so you go to the training course for a week you go the next year for a week then you, I studied with Bill Ray for months. You know, I go down there and see patients with him, and I see patients with other doctors learning from them. And then you can take the uh, written board and then the oral board exam. But you can practice and be like a general practitioner and start your practice with sort of the philosophy of environmental medicine, do the allergy testing, do intravenous vitamins, sauna, oxygen, and you don't really need a board exam to start out. Okay. So it's sort of cutting edge. Okay, uh, doctor. I think oftentimes when someone has a uh, problem living or working in an environment, you know, their first thought is to get out of that environment. You know, go somewhere else, go to a new space. And mm-hmm. what recommendations would you give someone who is gonna, you know, go to a temporary place for a while? Are there some things they should do? Are there some things they well? Should are they not sick? Do? And are they pretty sick from the home? Are they feeling? Pretty, pretty. If they have neurologic impairment like memory loss, balance problems, 
Um, they can't read very well. They have headaches, especially morning headaches is a classic for mold. Um, if Let's say they had those symptoms. Um, they're leaving because they have those symptoms, or they wouldn't probably bother. Right. If you have neurologic impairment, you know you have, in my mind, you know you probably have a toxigenic mold without measuring anything because you've already got neurologic damage. So if you look at your husband and he's belligerent, that's a typical, <laughs> it's typical that the women become chemically sensitive and fatigued and the men become belligerent. They can get uh, neurologic problems as well and they can get a bright red face. Sometimes in, it's not just alcohol that gives men that bright red face. So you have this dichotomy between the woman becoming very ill and weak and the man becoming kind of nasty. And it's hard for them to work together. They often divorce over this issue. And I wrote an article in LA Yoga called uh, Mold and Marital Discord and about why couples split up usually because of this. But if they are going to an apartment together or a, you know, a hotel, the idea is to get away from their clothing, their purse, their car, and, and sort of start fresh and go away for a few days or a week. If you can get clean clothes from like Sam's Club or somewhere inexpensive, pre-wash them with seventh generation and borax so they're not having fabric softener and traditional detergent in the new clothing, which will irritate them. They go to a little uh, extended stay America and live for a week, let's say. And when they emerge, if they go home to their old house and just, let's say, touch the clothing, even if they're outside the home, if they put on a pair of pants, they may get neurologic problems, nausea, drop in blood pressure, feel sick. And it's instantaneous sometimes. It could take 30 minutes, but I mean, it's, it's obvious to them that something in the clothing is making them sick. It almost doesn't matter what it is. It's just the fact that their old clothes make them sick and they have to get away for five days to be able to see this response. And it's the classic uh, test in environmental medicine for anything you're sensitive to, whether it's a food allergy or it's a chemical exposure that has made you ill. When you get away for five days and get re-exposed, uh, with a high concentration on the sixth day or seventh day, then you become ill. You know you've got a problem, and that's free. You don't have to pay anybody. Then you can say, okay, I'm going to test the clothing for these mycotoxins and see if I can find them. Now, we've got a text question here, and this leads exactly down the road I was interested in. And the, the text question from a listener is, are the symptoms experienced by chemically sensitive people caused by a toxic reaction or by an immunogenic or neurogenic hypersensitivity reaction? I would say, one, I'm not an expert on mechanism, and I don't think anybody's an expert on mechanism because we don't know why, and I think it's multifactorial. My experience is that when I have a reaction, which I, I'm basically normal now, I, you know, as normal as I can get, I don't really have too much chemical sensitivity problem because I live in a clean environment. But if I get exposed to something like diesel exhaust, it's pretty bad. Um, my reaction to diesel exhaust, oh, it's fascinating, was muscle weakness. And I was driving a car, a rental car in Dallas. I didn't understand the condition yet. I was there for the first day of treatment. I go home on the highway and diesel exhaust comes in the car, and my arms got weak and dropped off the steering wheel at 70 miles an hour. So, and I didn't know why. I didn't understand that the smell of the diesel triggered the reaction. I later learned, after it happened a number of times, that diesel makes my limbs really weak, and I just collapse. Um, other, uh, other issues 
that can be affected sort of by a chemical exposure is the area of the autonomic nervous system. And this is how you get dysautonomia. So you can get drop in blood pressure. You can get fast heart rate on exposure. You can also get diarrhea because that's the autonomic nervous system. You can get uh, goosebumps. You could get headache. You can get a hoarse voice where you can't speak anymore. So the reactions are there's a multitude of reactions, and a lot of times people will have one area that is their reaction. So they usually get asthma and wheezing, or they, I usually get fatigue and headache. If I eat a food I'm allergic to, uh, sensitive to, like peanuts, I usually get a hangover, like a headache the next day. That's my typical reaction. So everybody's different, and there are immunologic effects, there are endocrine effects, there's everything. So I think that it's too narrow to say there's one mechanism and uh, one person's going to get notoriety uh, for discovering that mechanism. Now, we're almost at halftime, and, and I have a quick question before we get there, and then sure. we'll bring in Dr. Wow. Do you feel that many people, if not everyone, has some type of environmental sensitivity they just haven't found right. it yet? Yeah, I think we're all on a spectrum. We all get exposed to things throughout our life, and we all have issues, sensitivities, mental health issues, ADD symptoms. And it's really um, 5% of the population is disabled by chemical sensitivity. We don't use the multiple words so much anymore. So that's a significant part of the population. 15% have symptoms of chemical sensitivity if you ask them, and that's been in multiple polls, government polls. 40% of the population has mild symptoms and may not be aware the ratio of women to men is four to one. So it means 75% of women and 15% of men have some symptoms. So everybody, as they age and their hormones decline, they start to develop more issues with intolerance to perfume or the detergent aisle of the grocery store. And it doesn't bother them until they become dysfunctional. Then they seek help. Does that make sense? I, it does to me, and that, the reason I brought it up is I know that our, our halftime is with Dr. Dietrich Weil here, and I remember him telling me a story about uh, coming from Germany and reacting to poison ivy, for instance, not even knowing what the heck it was. And also, I know that he's had some environmental sensitivity um, when we traveled one time to Baton Rouge, where we went stayed in a hotel. We don't know what the heck it was, but it, it, the next morning, I, it didn't look like Dr. Dieter to me. His eyes were shut closed and we had to move to another hotel and he is not the kind of guy that typically you know, reacts to anything you right. know so i just want to bring him on at halftime here and get his comments on the first half of the show sounds great okay okay we're going to do the sponsors first joe and then we'll bring in Dieter. great we're delighted to have as our first association sponsor the indoor air quality association a nonprofit multidisciplinary group dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at IAQA.org. Now, thanks to our advertisers. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. ProRestore for cleaning, odor removal, and antimicrobial products and equipment remediators trust and depend on. Visit them at ProRestoreProducts.com. And, of course, our primary sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at 
ieconnections.com. Dry's Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry's is first in drying solutions. Learn about them at dri-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn more at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. Dr. Dieter. Yeah, uh, I, I think this is an absolutely fascinating topic. And it's fascinating because I don't think anybody has really an answer or the answer. And I have a couple of questions which, which, which interests me. We said, you know, exposure to moles. Could there be something else? We are all exposed to moles, and I monitor uh, the mold uh, levels in the Pittsburgh area on a, on a routine basis. Obviously, right now, with two feet of snow, there's not much going on out there. But during the summer, are there any, any bio-indicators of a person who may have reactions like you have? By and large, nothing bothers me, comma, however, except, you know, poison ivy. <laughs> and I react like crazy. Um, that is the one thing that, that, um, that uh, interests me. And the next question then is there the famous dose-response relationship. Yeah, how much does it take to have somebody keel over? Or is that person really so much more sensitive uh, than another, than the other 75% or whatever it may be? Uh, those are questions that I have. Now, I'm very well aware that some molds produce very powerful uh, chemicals, like penicillin produces penicillium. That's pretty, pretty good stuff. And you know, cyclosporin is, is, is used to knock down the immune response, knock down the immune response of transplant patients. I don't know whether they are still using that, but a friend of mine is a transplant physician, and they said they still use mycotoxins to do just that. And they may have found you know, a sister or a brother of cyclosporin. But the one thing that really interests me is is there a marker? Is there something that I can say I can take a blood sample or a urine sample, a skin sample, a hair sample? And I said, yep, this person is, 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 has a deficiency which makes him or her more sensitive to chemicals. And I said, you know, uh, I said a thousand times in the last 30 years, yeah, we are living in a world with chemicals about which we really don't know anything. When I was a kid, I, uh, there were no chemicals. The first chemical that I, uh, that there were no plastics. The first plastic I ever saw in my life was called Bakelite, and it was a pretty lousy <laughs> material because it broke and they made made toys out of it. 
But today, I mean, it is just unbelievable. Yeah. Every day I am touching at least 20 products that somehow were in, in contact uh, with uh, some plastics. Whether it's the, 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 the water I'm drinking, uh, 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 the milk bottle, uh, the meat that is wrapped into uh, uh, saran wrap, and, 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 and I mean, the list goes on. Not to mention of what is in my car. It's all plastic everywhere. So I don't know. Is there a common denominator somewhere out there? That is probably the big question that I have. And what is the dose response? Does every or those people who are sensitive, do they all react to the same amount? Or is there even a dose response curve in the exposed people? I think I better shut up. All right. Thank you, Dieter. Let's bring uh, Dr. Nas back on. And by the way, I got the pronunciation right, folks, but uh, Dr. Nodge also uses Nagy, Nagy is it? Um, so yeah, people spelled, know how to spell your name? It's spelled like Nagy. It's N-A-G-Y. <laughs> so if anybody wants to you know, find me, it's easier to go by the phonetic spelling. And I said, is it Dr. Dieter? Dietrich Weil, yes. Oh, Dr. Dietrich. Weil or Dieter he goes by. Oh, because it's, he, he's making great comments. I don't know if I can remember each one of them to address them, but um, there are, I wouldn't say, um, there are so many tests that you can do on a patient that help to decide how sick they are. But there's one, t- I, I've been giving lectures, you know, on chemical sensitivity, and one of the tests that you can do on a patient is called capsaicin challenge. And it was by a guy named Mikvist, and he, he, he uh, maybe it's a woman, um, there are about 17 papers they've written on using uh, pepper, basically a pepper spray, to test the cough response of normals and then chemically sensitive people. And capsaicin challenge looks to me like to, to be a great screening tool. If you're chemically sensitive and you're exposed to this, you'll have an increased cough response and normals will not at a very, you know, a very low dose. Um, there are other tests that they do in an environmental physician's office that make it obvious uh, if somebody has chemical sensitivity, and that's the skin testing. The allergy testing is called provocation and neutralization, and what it does is you go home with a vial of, you know, a little bit of mold, pollen, food, everything that you have problems with, and you do an injection once a, you know, once a week, and it fixes your reaction to prob- uh, problem things in the environment. So if you go in for skin testing and they test you for glycerin because it's the preservative in some of the doctor's shots, if you're chemically sensitive, I think we need to do a study and find out how many of the people are positive to glycerin. But if you're chemically sensitive, you're more likely to react to glycerin. So I'm a six on glycerin, whereas you guys would probably be a zero. And that helps split people up a little bit. Who's got real chemical sensitivity and who's got a little sensitivity to this or that but doesn't have the syndrome. The other test we do is a venous blood gas to look for hypoxic uh, tissues and inadequate oxygenation of the tissues. All of us could have a venous blood gas, and anybody who's in the 30s is a little abnormal because 25 is normal. So in my case, uh, I had a venous blood gas, and it was 75 which without explaining exactly what it means, um, I was on death's door. So I had no oxygen being used by the tissues, and it was coming back high in the vein, almost like it was in the artery. So the tissues weren't using it. So depending on the person's symptoms, you can do various tests to document you know, the level of impairment they have. 
There are genetic tests that look at detoxification problems. And if you've got three genes that are basically common, but if you have three of them, let's say, you may be much more likely to become chemically sensitive. Does that all make sense? Yeah. Makes sense to me, Dieter. Oh, I'm sorry, Dr. Dieter. There you go. You're back now, Dieter. Well, uh, two toxins um, together do more, by and large, by and large, more damage than one by itself. Uh, there's no doubt about it. It's it's like, uh, <clears throat> yeah, uh, it's cigarette smoking, <clears throat> excuse me, and asbestos, or something like that. I mean, uh, 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 we know that. That is well known from the field from toxicology, that if you expose a person to two, three, four, or five chemicals, which by themselves don't really do a lot, if you give them in a, in a and that's what happens in, in nature, that's what happens out there. We are not only exposed to one chemical if we are in a factory, in a chemical factory. We are not only exposed to one chemical when we go to an office building. There are multiple exposures to a lot of chemicals that are there for one reason or another some intentionally, some unintentionally. So no doubt about it, uh, uh, two, uh, do more da- two or more do more damage by every one of them by itself. And the other interesting thing you were talking about is being not sensitive, because most men will say, hey, I'm not sensitive to anything. I'm pretty good. What's the deal? And there's two comments I have. One is masking. A lot of people don't realize because they use fabric softener and they wear cologne or perfume, uh, and, and they use uh, regular detergent. We won't say brand names. You can't tell that you're sensitive. I couldn't tell. I have the disease. And so you've got to stop using some chemical products on your body and scented products in order to unmask and notice your sensitivities. And Claudia Miller has a queasy scale or queasy scale. And one of it is the amount of masking that the person is under is sort of experiencing because you may think you're not sensitive, but you kind of lead me to be in a clean environment five days to unmask. And then the other thing I was going to mention, if I can remember what it is, oh, mold is everywhere. So if you compare walking outside to living in a building, let's say outside it's really moldy and uh, you know, on Martha's Vineyard, let's say, the mold count is very high. But you go into a house that's clean versus a house that's um, very moldy, the level of mycotoxins in the indoor air is very, I think, very. it's very concentrated. So it's not like there's just a little mold in the corner, but if you have a mold problem that is producing mycotoxins and they're encased in a house, that's the problem, especially if they're in the bedroom because the person is really getting a high dose. And the corollary to that is something called the hormetic effects, and I'm not an expert, but there's a double dose response that at very low doses you can see an enhanced response. It is not always, I think like regular toxicology looks at it, that the higher the dose, the worse the effect. And they're noticing this with endocrine disrupting chemicals is that it's very low dose of bisphenol A may cause problems. Um, It doesn't have to be a high dose. So we're just learning all of these things. And I think I was appointed to a um, government working group called the National Conversation on Chemicals and Public Health. And we're dividing up into six groups, and I'm on the scientific understanding group. And in that group, we're looking at a new paradigm for how you think of disease. Where does environmental exposure fit into the disease process? And how can we treat people more 
effectively and cost, you know, cost effectively. If you can take a person with Parkinson's disease or MS or ADD and find out that it's due to mold, pesticide, mercury, their genetics, their hormones, and fix them, you would save billions. Instead of maintaining people with medications and still letting them have their disease process continue. So I know I'm you know, going all over the place, but it's very exciting, the possibility, if we could get everybody to work together in medicine, uh, then the, the, pu- the public would really benefit. But right now, the government sort of acknowledges it, and medicine is putting their feet in the sand and saying, we don't believe there's any proof for these conditions. They're not even listening. Even when you give them the data, they don't want to hear it. Now, weren't you diagnosed with Addison's disease, and then after you went through this uh, process with Dr. Ray, you... You no longer have that same diagnosis? Well, to tell you the truth, it's kind of funny because I haven't taken a pill of Cortef uh, in a long time. And I, usually you take five milligrams of Cortef four or five times a day uh, to handle the, the stress because the adrenal is the stress gland that keeps us alive. And if you don't have Cortef, cortisol, you die within two days. But the fascinating, the fascinating thing is the Army did a study on rats. They took rats and exposed them to the mycotoxins called the trichocythines. And the female rats got adrenal failure. The male rats did not, which proves what we see. It, it, it really is an example in animals of what we see in women with chronic fatigue or chemical sensitivity because so many of them get adrenal insufficiency. What the second study they did was is they gave testosterone to the female rats and they prevented the development of adrenal insufficiency so, or adrenal necrosis. So if, if you guys have testosterone levels, let's say you're 700 and I'm 40, what is the chance that I'll have enough testosterone to offset my exposure? It's nil. So I'm going to succumb and get adrenal problems because I can't borrow from testosterone to make the other hormones. So this is why you guys are healthy. It's not because you're better. It's only because of the testicles. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, you bring up an interesting, um, you you brought up the military, and in our announcement we sent out today, I I put in the announcement that it was really uh, kind of, uh, I I, I don't know, uh, unusual that I put out this announcement, we've got you on the show today, and one of the headlines in the AP was, that the Veterans Administration is now going to reopen Gulf War veterans' files. And I know you're familiar with the chemical sensitivities and uh, that these men and women seem to have developed as a result of their service in the first Gulf War. Can you tell us a little bit more about your understanding of what the problem is there? Well, I don't, in my mind, my simple little mind, I don't really divide the diseases. If you have chronic fatigue fibromyalgia, Gulf War syndrome, or chemical sensitivity, you're in the same ball of, you know, diseases or group of diseases. And this was proven by spinal fluid analysis by uh, Dr. Barani up at Georgetown. And he looked at three groups, uh, and most of those people in the groups had symptoms of chemical sensitivity, severe, severe symptoms. And they proved that there were abnormal proteins either produced in the brain or leaked into the brain that were never discovered before until he found them. So we know that, one, Gulf War syndrome is real, and it could have multiple causes. It could be caused by DEET exposure or oil exposure or uh, vaccination and mycoplasma. There are m- many theories about But again, it's the total load. 
it almost doesn't matter so much, except that for prevention, you want to not uh, propagate the same problem in the next war. You want to not give pyridostigmine if that's a stimulant, you know, something that's one of the causative agents. What happens, though, I just wrote a resolution about a year ago in the Massachusetts Medical Society to acknowledge Gulf War syndrome, chronic fatigue, and chemical sensitivity, and to teach doctors about these syndromes and the mild symptoms that we all get. So the spectrum, you know, when your wife gets a headache all the time and is she becoming sensitive and your daughter has ADD and all the way through Gulf War syndrome to, to teach people what it all is, you know, what we know so far. And the medical society should be looking at the data out of Boston University. And there was a congressional report out of BU on Gulf Warrior Syndrome. It said it's real. It said here's the data. These are the brain scans. They have chemical sensitivity symptoms, that it's related to the same condition as chemical sensitivity in the general population and chronic fatigue. Yet the Massachusetts Medical Society just yesterday said they spent a year evaluating my resolution and decided that it doesn't meet Hill's criteria, whatever that is, which I've researched, doesn't meet this criteria for being a real disease. And there's no cause that they can say causes. It almost doesn't matter in my mind what a cause is of a condition. If a condition exists, then it's real. And then you go find out why and how to treat it. And for 35 years, people have been saying, well, we don't believe it's real. And I think it's because the women look crazy. And people just won't say it. They think they have a preconceived notion that it's got to be psychiatric. And my gist is to say, yeah, you get some psychiatric symptoms and you also get physical symptoms. And there's cause and effect. And if you treat the patient, as I was, you can get rid of really a number of the problems and maybe return the person to better health than they ever were before. So I know I've gone on describing, you know, this Gulf War thing, but it's all tied together. And they've denied the Gulf War vets issues for, I guess, 17 years. And the Katrina victims are going to have the same problem. And the, the people at Camp Lejeune, I guess that's a 30-year-old issue with the water. The, the process of denial of people with problems is, is unfair and ridiculous. And we need the government to really advocate for people, not go in and tell people that they're crazy and that they don't have a problem. I hope that makes sense. It does. It does. And I, before we go, I wanted to get into the treatment a little bit more. But, Cliff, I wanted to go back to you and see if you had anything you wanted to ask. Well, actually, I have two questions uh, that I'd like to ask. I, I guess the first I'll one. I'll be real quick. That's okay. <laughs> well, I guess the first one is that, you know, you were talking about people um, getting away from a contaminated environment. And, I mean, even if they go and stay at what's probably acknowledged the finest hotel chain in the world, Ritz-Carlton, they're still not going to escape uh, laundry detergents and chlorine bleach that's used to, you know, deal with the linens and, and so on and so forth. Where do these people go that's affordable and local to them? Number okay, one. well, it's a great question. The all... Hello? Thank you. Are you still there? Yeah, go ahead. I'm still here. Okay. Can you hear me? Um, at the clinic in Dallas, it's called Environmental Health Center of Dallas, and the website is good to you know read about this. It's www.ehcd.com. And he has housing at that the Marriott that's nearby where they have 20 rooms that they've gutted. They're tiled. They have organic mattresses, air filters, and glass-bottled water. And there are hopefully, you know, no chemicals in the cabinetry and that kind of thing. Um, it is very difficult to do a complete unmasking in a traditional hotel 
because they're carpets and down and, and polyester. And I was sensitive, very sensitive to down pillows and polyester. So you're right. It's very hard. But what you're trying to give somebody who's struggling a little plan. So first they have to believe there's a problem, and they're not going to believe it unless they have symptoms on re-exposure. So initially they could stay with a friend or go to a hotel and see what comes up after a week of being away and then re-exposure. Then once they figure that out, yeah, it's torture. You lose, you lose your, your finances. You lose your family. It's horrendous because nobody believes you. And you know you're not crazy that you're experiencing this, but there's very, very few people who will stand up for you and let alone pay for you to get treated. So what we need is really the government to supply a plan of clinics all around the country, of you know nice clean housing that maybe people who could go to clinics could stay in, and also housing that is um, like uh, uh, hotels that don't have carpeting. Because half of the problem is carpeting. If you get sick from this and you move, you never want to have carpeting in your bedroom. And you want to have a clean air filter, a charcoal air filter, and create this oasis bedroom where you can recover, even if it's just one room in the house. That's the sort of a big premise of what to go, you know, where to start. And you had another question, too. What was that? Okay, well, I think what we're going to do is we're going to go to what we call a roundup now, and I'm going to ask the first question, <laughs> and then Joe's going to ask one, and then Dieter's going to ask one, and then we're going to go ahead and we're going to sign off. So I'll, I'll, we'll, okay. we'll still get them all in. Go ahead, Annie. Move them on, hit them up, hit them up, move them on, move them on, hit them up, raw high. Okay, doctor, I want to go back to something that you said before. You said that um, men in general kind of feel macho and kind of deny these symptoms. A lot of the people yeah. that listen to the show are remediators. These are people that are going in and cleaning up these buildings. They're tearing out the contaminated materials that might have fungal or bacterial contamination and so on and so forth. Is there any advice that you would have for remediation workers, people that are exposed to these things on a daily basis and aren't feeling sick? Yeah, I think you have to be um, going to happen to you way before it happens because there's there's no going back once you get sick. It's really torture. So it doesn't matter if you believe it. There should be rules about never wearing the clothing after you've been in a contaminated building into your car because you'll transport things into the car, then your family gets in the car, or you get in the car on Saturday, and you transport everything into your home. So, and washing the clothing that you, you know, that you wear into a house at home will contaminate your dryer. And all chemically sensitive people know this. Once you contaminate the dryer, the drum can't be cleaned. So, and this is known in, in other areas of poisoning, where the, the wives get sick because they do the laundry, in fact. So you really have to consider wearing a Tyvek suit, like, this routinely, and then maybe getting out of it before you get into the car and have a routine where you're happy, you're protecting yourself. And an N95 mask, a full face respirator or whatever, it has been determined by somebody else, not me, at a mold meeting I went to in Houston, that it does not prevent the mycotoxins from entering the, the air that you're breathing. So are you going to have a closed system of an air tank? I don't, I don't know. But if you're going to do the job, you really have to learn how to protect yourself, and if it's a very toxic environment, you've got to be really careful. 
Okay. Okay. Uh, Joe. All right. Uh, what I, I've said a couple times, we, we're going to get to the treatment, and you've mentioned a couple of things. And I think the first thing you would say is for people, number one, don't give up, okay? You, you know, keep trying. And then you mentioned getting into a clean environment um, with clean air and with uh, water. I've noticed you mentioned bottled water a few times. What other types of treatments would you recommend for people that are having these types of environmental sensitivities? Okay. The water can be ordered from Mountain Valley. I have no stake in this, but they do deliver glass bottled water all over the country in five gallons and two and a half gallons. It apparently is extremely important to have uh, spring water as you go through treatment. Even if you're just uh, living in the moldy environment, you can't leave. Get the water. It's very helpful. It lowers your toxic load because of the intake of water is you know, so high during one day. Uh, chlorinated water is not your friend because it's going to – sorry, my phone's ringing in the background. Um, chlorinated water and fluoridated water will increase your toxic load. So even when you shower in it, sometimes people will become sensitive to the chlorine, but, you know, it's a bit troublesome. But the rest of treatment is basically identifying the cause of the problem acutely. Is it mold in the house, let's say? And then getting away from it, getting away from the clothing if necessary. And um, treatment includes, I would say, starting with IV vitamins and oxygen. If the person needs oxygen, it'll strengthen their system and they feel good that first day. Intravenous vitamin C, glutathione, vitamin B, these are all helpful. And the list goes on of, of things you can do intravenously to get the, re uh, the liver ready for detoxification. Then you put the patient in the sauna after maybe they're strengthened up for even a week, two weeks, if they're not ready. If you get in the sauna early, even for five minutes, you can crash. So never tell somebody that you know, a friend or a person in a house, to go get in the sauna without medical supervision or to be very careful because they can feel tired and weak for five days afterwards. Then the other things we do is we fix the hormones. So if you have thyroid and adrenal problems, you can replace those hormones. You fix the neurotransmitters. So you measure those in the urine, and you make them have less psychological problems, let's say, because you give amino acids to replace those missing neurotransmitters. Um, I'm trying to think of what else we do. Uh, rotation of the diet. You don't eat the same food every day because you become sensitive to it. A lot of these people can't tolerate most foods. They start to become allergic to everything. So you do a four-day rotational diet where you have pork on Monday, and you don't have pork again until four days later. And you try not to have the same thing for breakfast every day. So you rotate your foods and your immune system becomes more tolerant of those foods because you're not seeing them frequently. Then um, the main thing that uh, you know, environmental doctors do is provocation and neutralization allergy testing. And if you take, I was on Nightline and showing these vials of you know, chemicals, but basically it's very dilute amounts of a chemical a mold, a pollen, a dander, a food, everything you test for. So it takes weeks to do the testing. You do an injection, and it quiets down your response to all of those offending agents. So I ride a horse a lot. I'm very sensitive to horse when you do the allergy testing. So I do a shot once a week, and it tells my body to clamp off that reaction to horse, dog, cat, whatever it is. And I feel good almost all the time, never get a headache, never feel tired. And I'll uh, end there because I know that you probably need to wrap up, but I, I wanted to summarize basic treatment really depends on this allergy testing and going to a doctor who provides it potentially without glycerin in the shots because a lot of us are sensitive to glycerin. 
And this is similar to what people would get at a, a, an allergy doctor's, but they may have glycerin. No, it's completely different. The regular allergy guys do, I don't even know that well about desensitization, but they're doing escalating doses of pollen to get you used to pollen. Okay. Okay, neutralization goes lower and lower in concentration until they find your neutralizing dose, which you take home. It's like a smidgen. You can't have an allergic reaction to it. There's no risk of anaphylaxis. It's a non-dangerous type of test. And then it tells your body to turn off a reaction. So you, it's a complete division between uh, allergy, traditional allergy, and environmental medicine allergy testing. And that's the, the beauty of it is that it's kind of a risk-free, but again, they've been battling for decades about whether it really works. And I, you know, I can obviously tell you that it, it does. I went off the allergy shots and um, within two months I was on death's door. So, you know, I, I got the shots again and within an hour of doing my basic shot, I um, felt great. I could go outside. I didn't mind the smell of fireplace smoke. Everything felt great. So I'm a real believer in, in, in the allergy testing. And a lot of people think they know it all that you could just give a detoxifying agent like cholestyramine to take out the mold toxins of the body and not do any of the rest of this. And I'm saying that it's, you know, cholestyramine is fine as a binding agent, but it's not that easy to just give you one treatment and you're going to be fine. It's just too complicated. I'm glad I asked. Okay. <laughs> Cliff, did you have anything or did you want to go to uh, no, I wanted. I wanted to go to Dieter and uh, see if he had a last question. Well, probably not a question, but a comment. And I, I, I think it's, it's something that I have been saying all along. Uh, when I grew up in Germany uh, during a time, like I said, there were no plastics. I, I grew up with stone, glass, and wood. That was it, like my four, 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 four forefathers. <clears throat> and I think uh, what we are doing with all these plastics over here, and I think Dr. Nudge did ex ex uh, a point into that direction. Uh, said, hey, Gaia, there are a bunch of things happening there uh, that perhaps our body was never really made for to detoxify by itself. So I like, uh, I, I like that, and I have been saying that all along, even though I still drink spring water, hopefully not contaminated by a deer upstream, <laughs> um, um, uh, out of a plastic bottle. But uh, uh, I think, I think of what we are seeing with allergies and 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 sensitivities did not exist when I grew up in 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 the population that I knew of. I never even heard of it. And on the other hand, I'm also very happy to find out that there is a difference between a man and a woman. <laughs> and I love And I love the, the difference. And I guess that's why we have ice hockey for women and ice hockey for men and skiing for men and women and for that matter, ice skating, even though in ice skating it kind of goes the other way. But um, uh, I think... Um, um, yeah, I think that, uh, uh, we made a couple of very interesting points here and uh, things that may have been overlooked by people who inadvertently didn't want to look at it. And I said, I didn't learn anything about this. 
and I didn't get that in medical school. And uh, yeah, I read an article here or there, but I'm not an expert, therefore I'm not going to touch it. All right. Thank you, Dieter. And um, Cliff, did you want to finish up? Or uh, I know we want to give Dr. Naj a chance to add anything we missed and also let people know how to get in touch with her. Correct. Okay. And, and let's do that then. Is there anything we missed? That I, I know there's a lot more we could talk about, but anything that you really wanted to let people know before we go? Well, I think that, you know, one of my I wrote an article that got published recently in Women's Health Activist. So I guess I'm an activist in women's health now. We really need the help of men because, you know, men are sort of in charge of the medical societies and the AMA and government. You know, it's hard to get – when women climb to the top, they don't want to get dragged down again by this subject, if you see what I mean. So if a woman understands these concepts and she's a governor or she's in charge of a medical society, this will not help her politically. We need men to be really strong and say, Jesus Christ, we've got to help these women. And, and the, men will, the sick men will get helped as well. But there are so many women who are counting you know, on you guys to help. Whether uh, I spoke to Medscape yesterday. The director of Medscape is interested in doing a CME course, and he thinks this is fascinating. We need men who, who are financially vested in pharmaceutical companies and that kind of thing to say this is important and we will support you even if it may not be financially beneficial. And that's, you know, we really need to reach out sort of across the sexual aisle or the gender aisle and say, help us because nobody is listening. Anyway, All right. So, I you know, that's, that's my last point. plea. That's a great point. And um, once again, could you tell our listeners what your website is and sure. um, how they can uh, contact I'll you? I'll actually just give my phone number. It's uh, work number is 508-696-6998. And my email is lisa at nagy1.com. And the website Thanks. is environmentalmedicineinfo.com. And anybody who has suggestions on who can help in some way, whether it's um, you know, a financial donor or a contact to the media, I think Oprah was just pitched you know, this week to revisit this. And she had somebody on in 1985, and I think it's time to get us back on again. Wow. So that kind of help we really need, you know, political help, anything that you can you know, think of. Thank you so much for joining us. I know you have one of our listeners at least calling if he hasn't already. That's uh, our the winner of last week's trivia question, Cassie, should be giving you a call, and um, I know he's very interested. Really great. No, I really appreciate you having me on, and hopefully people will listen to the course. This is not – it's not a logical way for me to present the information, and I'm sorry if it's confusing, but on my website, I have a flyer that lists all the symptoms, and you can see how many symptoms you have and see how many your wife has and see if you were to do a little detoxification, even if you're not really sick. So that may be helpful. Great. That is. Cliff? Okay, before we sign off, I'd like to thank today's guest, Dr. Lisa Naj, my co-host, Radio Joe Yus, Environmental and Koalecki at the Controls, our Technical Director, Dr. Dieter Weil, but most importantly, you, our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.